It's week two of 2018, and this week on the podcast, we're talking about the innovations coming out of CES this year, as well as an update on the Spectre and Meltdown attacks. That's all coming up on the IT Pro TV podcast, starting right now. Hello and welcome to the IT Pro TV podcast. I'm your host Peter Van Rysdam, and I'm joined, as always, by Mr. Don Pizet. Don, how you doing today? I'm doing just well, and you know, just ready to jump into week two of IT Tech News. Yeah, and week two uh, these days means that it's CES going on, and it's. I mean, it, I think it's still called the Consumer Electronics Show. They might have changed it actually. Didn't it, it, don't they just call it CES now? It's not even a their official branding guide yeah. for for press says just call us CES. Yeah. And you know, it, it used to be that this was a huge event every year for tech people like us. But I saw it and I couldn't find it before the show. But there was an article last week that they they took the the top ten tech uh, top selling tech things of 2017. And none of them were announced at CES. They were all announced at like private company events. And so they were saying that the the biggest names in tech aren't coming out of CES, but you still get to go there and see a lot of the crazy new things that companies come up with. So it's, it's a neat conference. Yeah, we went, I think, two years ago now. Mm -hmm. And I remember, I don't, I don't even think Apple was there. You know, And if you're looking yeah. at top gadgets and things sold, I mean, that's going to be iPhone X. Uh, iPhone 8, <laughs> and probably down the list will be a couple of things, uh, the new iPad or something like that. But um, a lot of those companies, they, they put so much effort into the uh, the big launch events that they do yeah. that it just doesn't make sense um, to to go there as well. But CES has almost turned into the like the concept cars that you would see, and it's not necessarily the production cars, but it's where we kind of roll out, engage, um, engage consumer interest. And and the first thing we want to talk about was a new monitor from NVIDIA. Um, I know there's been always at uh, at CES. It seems like it, we're talking about what's the new big monitor or the biggest thing that's out there. Normally in terms of TVs, but this one is actually a computer monitor, right? That's uh, 65 inch 4K 120 hertz for gaming. Yeah, you know, computer monitors have always been well more expensive than televisions, and usually not very large in size. So a 27 inch monitor is pretty much the biggest that you you find in most places. Maybe something like a 34 inch. So Nvidia decided to go all out and. Um, this one, it, it kind of highlights a few different things. We have a, an article from Android Police here where they were highlighting it. Um, it's a 65-inch computer monitor. It's 4K, 120 hertz, right? So a really fast refresh cycle, uh, and it is developed as a, a gaming display. But it's got Android TV built into it. Now, I thought that was really interesting because it's a computer monitor, so you're going to have it hooked up to your computer. So it's not really anything Android TV can do that you're computer couldn't do, but, you know, it, it, it is increasing your attack surface, so that's a big <laughs> bonus uh, if you're worried about security. And it gets you covered on Android Police. Uh, yeah, it, it probably well, wouldn't have been covered. That is uh, true. Otherwise, the, if that didn't happen. The picture, I didn't show the picture. It's actually, um, I, I'm sure this is like an artist rendering or something of this television, <laughs> because I, I was thinking a 65-inch screen, wouldn't it take up more space than that? You would think, and, and it. so is that why they don't get that big? Because it's just a desk space issue, or is there is there a reason that you're mentioning monitors are more expensive a lot of times than computers or than than TVs? Why is that? In the in the olden days, it was the the dots per inch, the DPI of the monitor. That uh, on a television, the the dots like on the old CRTs, they they weren't actually dots. They weren't even square. They were more like rectangles. And on a computer monitor, they were square. So it was different. Uh, and that was why you couldn't like hook a Nintendo up to a computer monitor. They were just too different. 
but nowadays the technologies have come a lot closer together. But televisions are still a lot more friendly with being stretched large because they, they can blur their images a little bit. Can't do that on a computer because if you have text and you blur the edges, it it's bad. Uh, it makes it hard to read. So computer monitors typically have to be crisper and usually have a higher refresh rate, especially if you're doing gaming and, and things. So this one being at 120 hertz, that's that's pretty significant. And um uh, you know, most of us, they, they say like the human eye can only perceive up to 60 hertz. But if you're doing things like virtual reality or, or you know, in, in 4K, you've got these different quadrants in the monitor being rendered. That all requires a higher refresh rate. And it usually means more expensive. So I kept digging for a price on this one. They did not uh, indicate a price. Uh, I imagine this is going to be many thousands of dollars, you know, probably $5,000 or more. It'll be expensive. And it's one of those things that we'll probably see in the next couple of years, the price starts to come down and, and everyone has a 65 inch, you know, <laughs> uh, 4k monitor on their desk. But, uh, I was saying with, with TVs, uh, you don't want to use a TV as your monitor, but you might want to use this monitor as your TV as well, because it's, it seems to have specs that definitely compete with, you know, most of the yeah good and, televisions out there. And it and it's not like the old days where you know you, you actually just couldn't hook a Nintendo up to a computer monitor without having a, a scan converter of some sort. But these things, they have HDMI on them. You can you yeah. just hook a, a regular consumer device up to them. So I don't know that that line between television and computer monitors has blurred significantly. But sixty five inches, I, I'm not going to put a sixty five inch monitor on my desk. That's uh, that's a little crazy. Yeah, and I don't know um, what it was called, but I remember with the Commodore 64, my brother and I had had the little 13-inch TV in our room, and you had we just had the little switch on top. <laughs> you would toggle it back and forth. So, uh, you know, that's that was a great one. Uh, the other uh, announcement, uh, or one of the other announcements we saw from CES was Asus uh, announcing the Chromebox 3, which has some pretty beefy specs that are in, in line with a lot of uh, you know great Windows machines or or even uh, uh, Mac products. So again, this is one where I know we were talking about yeah. what's the price going to be. So, you know, this was another one uh, is coming from Android police where, uh, you know, the Chromebook environment has really exploded. A lot of Chromebooks that are out there. I have a Asus Chromebook that I use uh, that I, I tote around with me whenever I travel. Um, Chrome OS has just evolved a lot. And last year they started rolling out the functionality to run Android apps on Chrome OS. And that's done so well that, uh, Google actually killed off their Pixel C tablet, and they don't they don't even sell an Android tablet anymore. Like there is no official Google Android tablet. Instead, they're banking on Chrome OS as the future. Well, these Chrome boxes they didn't get a whole lot of attention last year. They, in 2017, there were no big uh, Chrome OS desktops. It was all Chrome OS laptops. So it's neat to see Asus do a refresh on this. I was surprised to see that. Uh, you know, they are bumping up to a 8th gen Intel processor. So, you know, pretty, pretty cool stuff there. A lot of power behind it. Uh, DDR4 memory and uh, 802.11ac wireless, USB 3.1, all the, the latest and greatest features. So these are desktop class, really, at this point. And in the past, these Chromeboxes have all been $200, $220, right around in that price point. So far less expensive than buying a desktop computer. And Chrome OS is so much more powerful now that if you need a, a desktop, if you have a, a school lab or shared computers, you know, most people use web-based applications these days anyway. So a Chromebox is perfectly suited for that. You stick it on your 65-inch uh, NVIDIA monitor and you're, you're ready to rock. It's going to run like a dream. <laughs> now, uh, and since they don't have a 
um, you know, screen on it like a Chromebook or or a touchpad or keyboard. You know, th- there's some cost savings for them there. So maybe that's how they're able to put in some beefier stuff and, and help get the price down. And I wonder, uh, will it come with Meltdown Inspector pre-installed uh, already? <laughs> or or the, the patches, maybe? You or, know, what, I didn't think, what if they put a marketing spin on this yeah. and, like, Meltdown becomes a feature? Like, <laughs> sure, <laughs> yeah. Access all of your logs at any time. <laughs> uh, so so uh, there's another um, uh, cool thing that we saw come out of CES that, it that really caught Don's eye because Don is just in love with anything that he can take and and turn a phone into a computer. I mean, he's even gone so far as we joked last time of putting the little keyboard on his oh, uh, yeah. on his phone yeah. to try to make it a computer at that size. Uh, which I almost put an article, uh, sent an article to you about a new BlackBerry coming out, but I thought <laughs> we don't want to waste our time. But uh, the Razor here, spelled uh, with an E, of course, because technology uh, uh, well, of course yeah. it sounds so much fancier when it has a z in it so so what is this one where where's the phone go in this is it the phone the touchpad all right so i i am a sucker for this technology yeah. and i you know i i carry a phone and a tablet and a laptop and it's just i have all these devices and uh, I made a comment a few years back. I was like, man, if I could just combine two of these things, if I ha- could have a, a tablet and laptop combo or a phone and tablet combo, I'd be happy. Like, just let me combine two of these devices. If I could combine three, that would be the, the perfect solution. And I've gotten close. I, I, uh, I bought the Asus Pad phone when it came out here in the U.S. And unfortunately, the version they released here in the U.S. was just terrible build quality. And it only lasted me a few months. It's, uh, you know, it just didn't, didn't hang in there. Um, the Apple iPad, uh, when they did the, the iPad Pro, I got one of those because you stick the keyboard on it. Now it's kind of laptop tablet combo, but you're locked into iOS. And so you don't have a whole lot of flexibility there as far as running standard tools. So, um, Samsung, release the Dex dock, uh, which lets you drop your phone into a docking station and then you can have a monitor and keyboard hooked up to it. And that's actually really impressive. I've been really impressed with Samsung's offering there, but it's not portable. It's designed for desktop. And, and I know so. I know it's dead now, but didn't didn't Microsoft tout that you could do this with a, a Windows phone and, and when kind of when they released some of the Surface stuff originally? Yeah, and, and what they did is they, they made the software to do it, right? Their continuum yeah. and, and all of that. Uh, but they left it up to the vendors to make the hardware for it. And none of the vendors did. No, nobody <laughs> made the hardware. And so Microsoft said, well, that's dead. So Razer is the latest company to take a stab at this. And they're actually going a little unique on it. So uh, they released the Razer phone earlier this year. Last year, they acquired Nextbit, uh, which made the Nextbit Robin phone, which you can buy at a big discount pretty much anywhere. Um, but the Razer phone was focused on gaming. And they're now releasing this laptop hardware. What uh, uh, For those of you that are watching the video, you can see on my screen here. Uh, you can see it at RazerZone.com. Uh, it looks like a laptop. But it has no CPU or memory or storage. It might have a storage bay on it. But what you do is you take your phone and you drop it right in there. That touchpad is actually the phone. And the, the Razer phone has front-facing speakers, so they drop that right in there, and they're, you know, right where the touchpad would be. And now you've got your speakers, and the phone turns into the touchpad. Then it blows up the Android operating system to be right there on the screen. And Google's actually started baking this functionality into Oreo 8.1. So if you're on Oreo 8, you don't have it yet, but on 8.1 and some of the newer betas, actually, I think it was 8.1 beta 3 that introduced it. Uh, this feature is there for you know connecting to any kind of display link monitor or, or whatever. Razer's just packaged it in a really fancy laptop. Um, 
I don't know how successful this would be. They didn't announce pricing. And in fact, it's a concept. So we don't even have a release date on this stuff. Uh, but rest assured, I'll likely buy it. And, you know, within a few months have, well, if the track record holds, then I'll have terrible things to say about it. But I'll buy it. <laughs> and and functionality-wise, you basically have a Chromebook then. Uh, sort of, yeah. Except uh, in this case, it would be running Android. Right. Okay. So all of your Android apps would be there. And the neat part here is that when you pop your phone out, all the work that you're just doing is right there on your phone. Sure. So you don't have to worry about syncing between devices, like which is what I have to do between my phone and a Chromebook or a laptop right now. Is there any relation to the old Motorola Razor? Like, is this because to have a name that close in that industry? Yeah. Um, you know, that, that's a good point. Um, the name of their phone is actually the, uh, well, actually, I think it's just called the Razor phone. Uh, yeah, the Motorola Razor, they actually still sell the Motorola Razor, and they're supposed to be, I don't know if it's launched already, but an Android. Uh, let's see if oh, we can right. find I that. I did read about that. Um, but maybe they're being saved by the fact that Motorola spelled it R-A-Z-R. Yeah. So they have an extra letter said, in hey, there. We, and we're going to put the vowel back in, but not the right vowel. Uh, that's my favorite <laughs> we're, part. We're going to pick one. Yeah. But yeah, I'm Googling and not finding it here, but they were going to do like another flip phone, but it ran Android. Yeah. Oh, I wonder where that, that ended up. It's at CES 2019, we'll we'll see that. There we go. Uh, all right. So next up, uh, switching gears a little bit, we want to talk about the Wi-Fi Alliance is launching the next gen uh, WPA3 encryption protocol, which uh, is following the WPA2 protocol. Um, <laughs> Oddly so, enough, follow WPA1. Yeah, the naming the naming structure <laughs> is crazy. They didn't go like uh, Apple and jump right from the eight to the X, you know, Roman numeral ten. There, they just uh, they they went for it. So. Uh, what's this all about? What's this mean? All right, so this this, uh, this announcement came out of CES, but it really transitions into our security section of the show. So, you know, a lot of neat stuff comes out of CES. Some of it comes and goes, but uh, but this one's a big deal because, uh, you know, the original security protocols that we used in, inside of a wireless network were, uh, well, WEP, the Wired Equivalency Protocol. And WEP got broken way back in 2001 or something like that. Uh, and so WPA, the Wi-Fi Protected Access, was released. Uh, it was proven theoretically breakable within a year. Uh, they actually broke it within, I think, two years. Uh, so WPA2 was released. Well, WPA2 is held strong for a long, long time, um, uh, some 14 years, I guess. Uh, so a, a good long while. And then we had the crack exploit earlier this year. and or with Later la or last year. Uh, oh, yeah, that's right. We're this in 2018 now. Week two, uh, so, Yeah, way back in the week 40s, Ugh. we had, uh, last year, we had the, the crack. And, uh, <laughs> and so <laughs> I, you, you can't say it without laughing. So that's yourself, a big John. problem. <laughs> um, so the problem there was that crack was exploiting a flaw in WPA2 itself. So it affected every implementation of it. And while it could be patched on the access points, it really was up to the clients to be patched. And... The clients, you just can't rely on them being patched. And that means that even if you update all of your infrastructure, somebody could walk into your environment with a mobile phone that's still exploitable by crack. So WPA3 is designed to, to fix that. Um, it's not a earth-shattering protocol change. There's not a lot of great new features and amazing stuff to it. In fact, it's not even introducing uh, any new encryption ciphers that I'm aware of. They, they haven't uh, fully specified that yet. But... What they are doing is bumping up a few options. They are taking the existing 
uh, encryption and bumping up to 192 bits, so a little bit stronger there. What was that, 128? Um, yeah, you had 128, and, and there were ways to do 256, but they weren't like part of the standard, so 192 now will be. Um, I, I don't know why they didn't go higher on that one, but they decided that must be enough. Uh, I know when you have mobile phones and other low-powered devices, you don't want to go too crazy on it, but you do want to protect your devices. Um, they are going to start enforcing a minimum password, which in WPA2 they didn't, so they're, they're going to be uh, kind of pumping that up. But the main thing is the fixing crack. And the problem there is this is not going to be an upgrade to existing hardware. So if you're like me and just put a whole new <laughs> mesh wireless system in your home literally two months ago, uh, as WPA3 comes out, you're going to want to replace that hardware again. I seriously doubt anybody will have software updates. So it'll be another round of updates. Hopefully we can couple this with some of the newer, faster Wi-Fi standards at the same time, and you can upgrade all at once. It'll take a while for all your clients to shake out too, though. So for example, your your mobile phones, your laptops, uh, Roku streaming devices, heck, Xbox, uh, you know, Nintendo Switch, whatever, whatever kind of de uh, devices and IoT appliances that you have, they all use wireless. It's going to take a while for them to support WPA3. It'll probably be a good three years before this solidifies. But if you have any projects going on right now that require large Wi-Fi purchases, you might want to reevaluate and see what timeline they release to find out what's going on. Um, you know, the article that we were linking to is, is Tom's Hardware, but you can go to the Wi-Fi Alliance page and actually learn a lot more about uh, WPA3. Uh, I will get to it eventually. Here we go. Um, on the Wi-Fi.org, that's the Wi-Fi Alliance, and you can find out more about their security update and the timelines they're proposing and, and all the other information. It's, uh, it's all right on there. Now, in, in the scenario you were just describing of, of your home, for example, mm -hmm. it, as long as you're on the latest firmware on your router, are you still susceptible to crack if someone comes in with a, with a phone, per, or say, that, that hasn't been updated? Uh, so it, it depends on how you define susceptible. So, so like, let's say I own the access point mm -hmm. and a guest comes to visit, right, and they're not patched. Well, then an attacker could still exploit them. They could still attack the guest. They couldn't attack my hardware, so technically I am protected. But if I'm promising data privacy to my guest, then technically I'm still vulnerable, right? And there's just not a great way to deal with that, especially, I, I love Android. I use an Android phone myself, but especially Android devices because the vendors just do not push updates. And when they do, it takes them months to get one out there. Uh, so there are tons and tons of Android devices that, as of this moment, are still susceptible to crack and probably will be until their owners get a new phone. Got it. And what's your address? Yeah. yeah. Let's, come. Let's, uh, we, we, uh, we can publish it right alongside your FOSCAM. There you go. Yeah. Which <laughs> I still want to do a show where you hack that. I think that'd be a lot of fun. Uh, well, fun, scary. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, all right. Next, switching gears, uh, we're going to talk about Western Digital. Uh, their MyCloud devices have a hard-coded backdoor, which... Sounds bad, right? I mean, hard-coded, that's... And, yeah, it should. Um, there have been a few high-profile cases of this over the last two years uh, where it, it's really bad when it's like a, a firewall vendor, mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, oh, shoot, what's the name of the company? Fort, Forte? Iron Fort? Oh, I forgot their name. Anyhow, um, where they, they were a firewall vendor, and they had a hard-coded password in their firewalls for tech support to use. So if you had a problem on the firewall, you could call up tech support, and they would just magically somehow say, oh, yeah, we see your device, and you know, let me see if we can fix that for you. Sounded nice, but it was a hard-coded password. And so if somebody found out what that password was, now they could log into these, these 
firewalls all across the globe and your VPN tunnels and things that you thought were secure are now vulnerable. Well, here it's just as bad as a firewall because of the type of the device. So these are the the Western Digital MyCloud devices, and this was on uh, Beta News, where they found that it had a hard-coded backdoor. But these devices are designed to make it really easy for you to back up, right? So you stick it on your, your Mac, your Windows machine. Um, I, I don't think they do Linux. And you back up your data, and it connects to a cloud account, and it's backing up to the cloud as well. So you've got two copies of your data, which is, is awesome. Except, thanks to this hard-coded password, and what our, uh, the article goes on to explain are easily guessed names, the, the aliases that it creates for these drives follow a predictable pattern, that an attacker could easily guess that, access your drive, and now have access to your backup. Well, what's in your backup? Everything. Everything that's important to you, at least. And so now they have access. And they even published the, uh, the username is mydlinkbrionyg, which is probably someone's name, which you can probably find them on an unemployment list somewhere. Uh, but the password is abc12345cba. Uh, notice they, they flipped ABC around there at the end. So I think that's a pretty high level that's of security. Yeah. Um, remember that the biggest challenge with hard-coded passwords like these is that we don't know about them. And so an attacker may know about it and we don't. And even if we do know about it, the second challenge is a lot of times we can't change them. It requires a firmware update. So the vendor has to basically agree to give up this support channel. And sometimes they don't want to. And now you're, you're left this way. But there will be tons of consumers that bought these drives, people who are not IT experts, that bought them at Best Buy or Target or whatever, just hooked it up, did their backups and thought it was great and it was easy, and they never think about it again. And their data could already be compromised. They wouldn't even know it. And these are people that wouldn't have gone in to try to change the name of the device or anything like that, so it's mm -hmm. going to have those predictable names. And and what struck me from the article is a quote here. It says, an attacker could literally take over your uh, WD MyCloud by just having you visit a website where an embedded iframe or image tag makes a request um, to that device. So, um, you know, that's a phishing scam where all they need you to do is visit the site. And even if you realize, hey, this is a phishing scam and don't do anything on that page, it's too late. you've gone to that page and, and you've done enough. So that's, uh, that's definitely a pretty frightening one and uh, one that I'm sure we'll um, see some fallout from coming up. And speaking of um, things we're seeing fallout from recently <laughs> uh, has been the the Meltdown Inspector attack. And uh, we talked about that a lot on last week's show, but um, this week we're kind of seeing where where we've gone from there. I think, um, you know, one of the things Don mentioned is it came out, um, it, it was released before uh, all the patches were necessarily ready. So we're kind of seeing how uh, Linux, how Microsoft and Apple, um, to, to name a few, the most important ones probably for most people, how they're handling those um, uh, those rollouts of those patches. And Apple's has gone relatively smoothly. I'm going to go ahead and say that uh, some Linux and some Microsoft uh, have not. So, so the first thing was Microsoft uh, basically said, we're not going to give you this update unless you've updated your antivirus. Is that kind of... So this one... It it kind of snuck by the wayside, so it didn't make it into headlines. I think that's probably what Microsoft intended. Um, there, there's a challenge, right? They, they, they've run into a few challenges with their meltdown patches. Uh, first off, like older AMD systems were just locking up and failing to boot after the update was applied. And so that created a challenge, and they had to go back and update the patch for that. But the next thing you bumped into was that a lot of antivirus products operate in a, they'll call it something fancy like stealth mode, right? But what it really is is the antivirus product acts like a rootkit. It's trying to hide itself 
from not just the operating system, but from any application that's running. And that, that way that the antivirus can better detect viruses without being detected itself. There, there are actually several uh, Trojans out there that can, uh, once they've infected your machine, they can detect and disable your antivirus if they know it's there. So a lot of antivirus products will use hypervisor technology, just like any hypervisor, Hyper-V or VMware or whatever, to basically hook themselves underneath the, the operating system and go undetected. Well, Microsoft's Meltdown patch actually breaks those, and it breaks that antivirus, and it breaks it in a way that'll usually just result in the machine blue screening and then locking up. So it's not like, oh, your antivirus doesn't work. It's, oh, your computer doesn't work. So Microsoft had to make a decision, and I, I don't know what the right decision here is, but basically what they said is we can't roll out the Meltdown fix to a computer unless we know their antivirus software is going to, to function right. And so they made a decision. I've, I've got their page uh, right here. Uh, so this was announced on January 3rd, just a few days ago. And what it's saying is, if your antivirus software isn't made compatible, then you will no longer be able to receive Windows updates, that you will not get the Super Tuesday update that has the, or Patch Tuesday, Super Tuesday is voting, <laughs> uh, the, the Patch Tuesday update to, um, to, to Patch Meltdown. But you also won't get any future updates as well. Like you will effectively no longer get Windows updates, which is awesome, right? That, that really helps things. Um, but it's up to the antivirus vendors to do it. And they've got to put in a registry key. And this little registry key says, yep, we're compatible. And then Windows will continue to do its updates. Now, that's a big problem right now. I think that we'll see this change. I think that right now they're rushing out these meltdown patches and these Spectre patches and... Over time, after Intel gets a better handle on what's going on, I bet we'll see more specific patches that, that handle this better, and it goes away. But if it doesn't, then, again, that average consumer, the regular person who they go to the store and they buy an antivirus product, you know, who, who knows what it is. Maybe it's Panda antivirus or AVG or something. And if it hasn't updated this flag, now they're not getting Windows updates either. And it's just kind of putting that person at more risk. It's a, it's another just a technical twist in this whole story. It just makes it worse and worse. It just keeps getting worse. And so if they're seeing those uh, little pop-ups saying, hey, you need to update your antivirus, if they click no thanks, I mean, you're, you're, they're putting themselves at huge risk yeah. that they might not even be aware of. And, and how many people buy a computer that comes with antivirus installed on it with like a 30-day or six-month demo? Yeah. The, the demo runs out. And then they just say, eh, screw it. I'm not not updating. <laughs> exactly. And, yeah. Which technically is their fault, but now they're not even getting Windows updates. Yeah. And one of the other things we talked about coming out of this was, um, you know, the, the whole exploit that they were um, taking advantage of was the ability for your processor to basically do things quicker by predicting um, certain things that were going to come up and, and having those processes ready to go. Um, and so we knew that we were going to see some uh, slowdown. Uh, basically, in, in how your machine works, because we're we're taking that functionality away essentially by patching here. So uh, Microsoft and Intel have shared uh, data on performance impact of the CPU uh, flaw patches, and that's uh, from SecurityWeek.com. So it's kind of the first where we're we're finally starting to to see some of this this data. Yeah, the 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 big problem here was their initial announcements didn't really talk about performance at all. They just said, "Here's this patch; it fixes things. Do it right away." And then other people started saying, well, it's going to impact performance between 5 and 30%. All right, that, that's what they were saying in the beginning. Imagine taking a 30% hit. That's like a third of your processing power just gone. 
that that would frustrate me. If I paid for a processor to run at a certain speed and now I've got to give up a third of that, that that's not good. Well, they basically started doing some studies and they said, well, you know, your workload is what's going to depend uh, determine how much of a, a hit you take. So some people won't notice it at all and others will take more. Well, now they've had more time to study and they're saying that uh, for most people, for most average users, it's actually going to be about a 6% or less performance hit. So that's a little more reasonable. The whole 30% thing is kind of out the window and it's all the way down to 6%. Uh, there have been a couple of other people out there that have been running hardware benchmarks under all sorts of different scenarios to find out what the true impact are, or true impact is, but it certainly varies based on which operating system you're running, which processor you have, and what type of work you're getting that system to do. All of those things are variables in figuring out how big of a performance hit you're going to take. But the reality is you will take a hit. All the cloud providers out there have run this. So that means that if you're using uh, uh, Google Compute Engine, Microsoft Azure, Amazon Web Services, you're actually getting a little less for your money this month and probably next month until the stuff shakes out. And and these numbers are specific to Microsoft in, in this case, Microsoft right. and Intel. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll see how those numbers kind of play out with some of the others. Uh, and then you mentioned something earlier and, and we have an article about it, so we can kind of just go over it quickly, but, uh, windows 10, basically as, as people were patching or putting these patches on there, uh, there were some users with windows 10 and AMD, uh, processors that were having issues so badly that, uh, basically their, their computer wouldn't boot up anymore. So it sounds like before you do these patches, and if you're not sure what your systems have, maybe do some reading about them and, and figure out if, if you're ready to make those patches. Yeah, well, there were, there were nine different uh, updates that were causing problems on the AMD systems. Microsoft has pulled all of them. So you're actually safe to update now because they've been pulled. But if you had already done the update, then you were in hot water. So uh, these were older AMD processors that were affected. So again, it's it's if somebody's running an older system with an AMD processor, they're not the kind of person that has good backups of their data. They're not the kind of person that pays attention to updates. Techie people, even if you love AMD, you're not going to run old ones. You're going to have a newer one. It won't be a problem. So it's all about the target audience on this one. And unfortunately, it was non-computer savvy people that were hit the hardest. Well, my, my parents have an older AMD computer, but luckily they have the Western Digital MyCloud. Oh, so yeah, good backup. Um, so they've put all the, yeah, so now their data is everywhere. So and that that's a great backup. Let the hackers take your data, and now it's I just have to go get it from the dark web. Well, it, did you verify their backups were up to date by logging in with the uh, yeah, the, the pre-built pre password? In the, <laughs> in the back there and, and figure that out, and everything worked. Uh, now, on the flip side, people that probably are more computer savvy, those running uh, Linux, uh, specifically in, in this article, Ubuntu, uh, they were running into some problems as well. And it sounds like a pretty similar situation where uh, those running um, Ubuntu and, and doing the patch were having issues where, again, uh, the, the computer just wouldn't boot back up and, and all kinds of problems. So that one's been pulled now, and, and we've got a new patch, it looks like, there, but still a lot of headache for a lot of people. Yeah, that uh, that kernel update that went out, it actually broke a few things. I use VMware Workstation on Linux, and it broke that. Uh, and so they they rolled it back, and then they've actually already deployed an update after that to fix it. So this is another one where if you if you downloaded the update while it was out, then it, it kind of broke things. But if you didn't, it's safe to upgrade now. They've pushed the fix out. But it just shows that when you have a security flaw of a critical nature and you rush to get the first patch out that you can, you just don't have adequate time for testing. 
And if they took time to test, they could eliminate these issues, but then they would be getting criticized for how long it took them to push out the, the fix. So they have to pick and choose. And for all the systems that we hear about that fail to patch and, and run properly, there are 10 times more that all did patch properly and are protected. So it's a part of the growing pain process, but nobody is immune from this, right? Every operating system, uh, they've all experienced some kind of pain with security updates these last years. Yeah. And again, uh, we go back to what we talked about in the last podcast is there was a system in place um, to alert all these vendors about this and let them make their patches, but then it, it still was released ahead of that time to the public. Uh, at which point uh, this this kind of became the mad dash where where these kind of mistakes happen. I know we talked last time about will this affect mobile or not, and um, you know turns out it did. And uh, mm-hmm. I know you know I got the update on my phone, and and those things have all been been going smoothly. But uh, yeah, it's tough when you kind of put that pressure on on people uh, to to get those changes out very quickly. You know, and, and speaking of the phone side of things, right? So there are these two attacks, meltdown and Spectre. And on most phones, meltdown wasn't. Uh, wasn't a problem, but Spectre was. And so the updates are going out for that. Uh, but there has been a lot of talk, a lot of people calling out saying, hey, we've got to break the Intel monopoly. We've got to get non-X86 processors out there. Would it kill us to have open source processors, right? The the RISC-V or RISC-V project uh, makes an open source spec for a processor that's been around for years. So they're, they're saying, what about these initiatives? And ARM, which ARM processors are used in, in most cell phones these days, uh, they've actually been kind of making headway in the data center space and starting to release some desktop and, and server class processors. And so there's been a call to start transitioning to that, or at least to have the option to say, if Intel truly botches up, who do we even switch to, right? So um, we are seeing a lot more movement there. Red Hat a few months ago had announced they were working on Red Hat for ARM processors and or, or RHEL for ARM processors, and they've already got some betas out for that. Fedora this week actually promoted the uh, ARCH64 or the ARM64 platform, there we go, to one of their officially supported platforms. So now they're actually going to be actively developing Fedora to run on that. So we'll see more and more of that over time. It's nice to have options. ARM processors don't have the same uh, muscle behind them that an Intel processor does as far as performance, but they... They're very stable processors, very powerful. Uh, they, you know, they can they can do a lot, and you can have a lot more of them because they run significantly cooler than the Intel ones do. So we'll we'll see where that goes in 2018. All right. So now I mentioned that uh, you know Microsoft had some problems, um, Linux had some problems, and things went relatively smooth for Apple um, with their rollout of all that. So we had to go in and find something that <laughs> Apple had done wrong. Um, in this in this last week, and we did, and but I think it's, this is one of those clickbaity kind of headlines. Um, I've been making a lot of fun about High Sierra of how every time I just I go to update it, and, and I'm notified basically every day by my com- my computer here to get on that that High Sierra train. Is uh, every day I hear something new about something breaking, something not working with it. So uh, this time around, it says Mac OS High Sierra's App Store system preferences can be unlocked with any password. Which wow, any password you can get in, but my App Store preferences are uh, that's that's not a big vulnerability. Vulnerability, I don't think. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of those things where um, it's more embarrassing than anything because it was just last month that or month before last, I guess that Apple had the what, in my opinion, was just like a grievous violation of end user trust by making it where you could you could bypass the uh, 
privilege elevation credential screen by typing in username root and no password. Like to, to be able to gain privilege access like that so, so easily, that should be impossible, right? So that was a big deal. That was a big security flaw and, uh, and, and they should be embarrassed because I mean, that, that's pretty much as bad as it gets. But then to fix it, they rolled out an update or a, you know, a patch and then their next update undid the patch and it came back, which we talked about in the show. And so 10.13.1, uh, uh, you had the patch, 10.13.2, undid it. They had to release 10.13.3 to finally patch that. So they had a lot of missteps on that one. And then here we are just two months later. And as long as you know the username of an administrator, when you get to that security preference screen for your application, you, you can punch in any password and it'll accept it and it'll let you through. It's it's embarrassing to see authentication like that on, on a privilege escalation screen. Even though the settings in there aren't super critical, there are things in there that control like how you do updates. So an attacker could actually turn off your updates and now just wait until the next security flaw, which apparently will be in a month. And, <laughs> and once they have that, now they've got an attack vector on your machine. It does require physical access, just like the last one. So it's not like rampantly exploitable. Uh, it's more just embarrassing. Uh, your yeah. your privilege ex escalation prompt should be the most secure thing on your entire system. Well, for me, I'll stay here on low Sierra uh, for at least <laughs> another week. I know um, everyone in the office uh, here who has upgraded uh, their docs don't uh, don't work anymore. The the anchor uh, uh, yeah. docs that we have for their monitors and and mice and keyboards and uh, USB sticks, which are very important things to have when you only have these USB-C uh, inputs here and all, all the uh, USB keys I had don't work anymore. So, um, yeah, I'll, I'll just stay on low Sierra for, I'm, I'm calling, I don't know if that's a term, but I'm going to go with that low Sierra uh, for just another couple weeks here, apparently a month, because that's about the timeline yeah, between yeah. Uh, updates. So. Uh, so let's switch gears now to the cloud. Uh, and this first one here, uh, Google Calendar on the web is finally moving to material design. Uh, and that's rolling out to G Suite customers. So, uh, what, what, what are we right. talking about? So I, you were excited. I, I was excited, or I am, am excited right now. Uh, I like Google. Uh, I, I use a lot of Google products. I use an Android phone. I, I started using Gmail for my personal email uh, the, the first year it was available. So I've had a Gmail account for a, a long, long time, um, sixteen years now, however long it's been. And I've said this about Google that they will launch a great product that is designed to scale to millions of users. They'll launch it, they'll put it online, they'll make it available, and then they'll abandon it. And you have products like Gmail that have been- Like Google Wave. Well, so that one, right, <laughs> they, they, they killed off after a year. They, they actually have gotten a little more aggressive with killing services off, um, some that a lot of people use. Yeah. Um, but in the case of products like Gmail, where tons of people use it, they just don't change it. Right, there have been no significant changes in Gmail in 16 years. There have been little tweaks, little additions every here and there, but nothing significant in the way that it handles it. And then they they rolled out Google Inbox, which was a whole new like separate product that supposedly would replace Gmail, but it's been years now and and it hasn't. So that's the way Google treats their products. Google Calendar and Google Contacts and Google Tasks, right? These three parts of their kind of collaboration suite. Um, have been like horribly neglected. I don't think Google Calendar's ever really had an update. I know Google Tasks absolutely hasn't. That thing has been truly abandoned. Uh, I don't know why they haven't killed it off. But 
to see an update like this, just, just to see it was exciting. Now, they changed it to use the material uh, design specification, which if you're not familiar with that, um, I'm probably <laughs> six years ago, Google with Android said, we're going to switch to this new material design where we have flat icons and there's a lot of circles and, and things. So it just makes it look a little more modern and, and fancy. Now, this was five or six years ago. This was not recent. So it is just now getting to Google Calendar and all it is is a facelift. All the functionality is the same. It just looks a little prettier. But to see them do something with the product, I thought was pretty, pretty nice. Now, if you use G Suite and you're managing your end users, this actually does create a little bit of a problem because now your users see a slightly different experience when they connect up. So there is going to be a little bit of retraining. You might have to update your, your end user documentation to, to keep those employees trained. But for a personal user, it, it looks nice and, uh, and it's already rolling out. So, uh, you know, kind of cool to see that. Uh, this is an article from uh, Android Police highlighting it, uh, even though it's not really Android, it's uh, in the Google Suite. But it uh, certainly does look a lot nicer compared to the older calendar, which was largely unchanged from when it originally launched. Yeah, those numbers look much bigger. So that's <laughs> that's very exciting for those of you uh, looking at your calendar. Yeah, the time. designers are getting older. Their eyesight's not yeah. what it used to be. Yeah. Like, time for a redesign. It's for the boomers and the baby boomers. <laughs> uh, it kind of reminds me of the whole Microsoft uh, Metro UI um, thing that they were pushing when they when they had the Windows phone and everything. That, uh, that was their whole new design look. It's kind yeah. of a similar process. but. Uh, so switching gears now to, over to the Azure side, uh, this is from, well, this is from Azure's website, actually. Uh, it says, maximize your VM performance with accelerated networking, now generally available for both Windows and Linux. Uh, so uh, how, how does that help us? All right. So on the Microsoft Azure platform, actually on most of the cloud platforms like uh, Google Compute Engine and AWS, when you spin up a virtual machine, it has a network adapter that is a virtual network adapter. And even though they use type one hypervisors and, and you get access to a, you know, a, a portion of a real CPU and a portion of real memory, you don't actually get access to a portion of a real network card. Instead, you get access to a, a para-virtualized network adapter. And that means that it's up to the software to determine what kind of speed you can get. And there have been limitations up in the past. So Microsoft just rolled out a new shiny virtual adapter in their environment. Uh, and this one has a maximum speed of 30 gigabit. So significantly higher than what we were getting before. So in the past, if I wanted to have 30 gigabit of traffic go to a server, I had to add more than one adapter and balance across them to get it. But now I can go down to one adapter. Or some people would just do more than one server and spread across the servers to get it. Well, now I could do this all in one server because you can get 30 gigs on a single link. So that's a big improvement. And it's really easy to roll out any uh, uh, new virtual machine uh, that is rolled out in the D-class series and F-class. Uh, uh, oh, actually, E-class, too. I missed that earlier. Uh, so the D and E-classes, F and M. Hmm. All right. Apparently, I didn't pay much attention earlier. I just thought it was the two classes. Uh, but they rolled it out. It was also really cool to see it. They rolled it out not just for those VMs, but for multiple platforms. Microsoft recognizes that they are launching a ton of Linux VMs these days. So a new feature like this you'd expect to come out for their Windows VMs first and make it to Linux later it's already launched simultaneously on the Windows servers. Uh, we've got the Red Hat Enterprise Linux, Ubuntu, CentOS, SUSE Linux, and well, there was one more. Uh, maybe that's it. So anyhow, a bunch of the different platforms all available right now, and you can take advantage of it and get more bandwidth on your VM. And you could take advantage of it if you know 
uh, how to be a cloud administrator. And that's our next article here, that there is a lack of cloud skills and training, um, and it's beginning to take its toll on, on the workforce. And, you know, this is something we've talked about in the past, that there, there's just a shift now in in what job roles people have, and you used to need to have that person on site to manage, uh, you know, all the things that were in your networking closet. Now maybe there's a lot less stuff, but it's it's all going out to the cloud, and that's a, that's a new skill set. This was a, a great article that I, I stumbled upon. Um, uh, just I don't even remember where I was when I came across it, but uh, uh, but it actually focused on something that I thought was really neat. We've talked in the past about how if you're an IT worker you need to be learning cloud technologies, right? Uh, that if you are still focused on on-premises servers, it would be like being focused on Novell Netware in the 90s. That technology is going away and being replaced. These data centers, these these cloud solutions provide such a, a more robust solution and can save you so much money that it's, it's foolish not to use them, right? So as IT workers, we recognize that. And, and it's fun to learn this stuff anyway. So we start poking around with AWS or Google Compute Engine, Azure, or whatever it is you, you want to use, uh, you know, Rackspace, uh, the Linux hosts that are out there, whatever it is you want. But where we're seeing a problem is, and, and what the article doesn't say in the headline here, is lack of cloud skills and training begin to take its toll. And what it should say is on IT leadership. Because if you go through and read the article, it's talking about IT decision makers, right? Uh, and they found that 71% of IT decision makers believe their organizations have lost revenue due to lack of cloud expertise, right? If you're running on-premises servers, the odds of you having outages are higher, right? The maintenance cost of maintaining that hardware, the replacement cost of maintaining that hardware. Your electric oh. bill. <laughs> oh, mean, yeah. They're just simple things like that and, and space and rent and mm -hmm. air conditioners and all those things. All of those things add up, right? And if you want to do them right, you've got to have the staff and the funding for it. Or you can just rent space out of uh, you know, Azure or, or Rackspace or AWS. And they've already got world-class employees that are already doing this stuff. And you can have a more stable environment that can scale much larger, much more quickly. So those are things that if you take advantage of it, you can make your company better. But if your leadership doesn't buy into that model, if they say, no, we're not doing cloud, we're keeping our data right here. If we go on the cloud, we're going to get hacked. Well, they need to learn. They need to learn exactly what it means to put something in the cloud. They need to learn about hybrid clouds. They need to learn that, yes, you can get hacked in the cloud. Yes, you can get hacked locally. It's all about how you secure it. What are the steps you need to be doing? How do you responsibly deploy this technology? And now that they're actually seeing this starting to hurt companies, hopefully we'll see more of this coming down the line. So I thought it was really cool that they weren't focusing on the IT worker, which is what I expected when I read this article. I was like, oh, great, another one telling us, you know, learn the cloud. We already know that. But it was focused on leadership, saying, man, the, the decision makers, the people who have their hand on the dollar bill, they're the ones who really need to make sure they understand what does the cloud have to offer? How can it be leveraged properly? What is a a provider that's safe to go with because you don't want to go with Bob's cloud hosting.net. You know, I, I want to go with an AWS or somebody who's a really big player in that space so that we have access to the resources. And it's confusing when you go to the AWS page and you look at their list of services, there's over 60 different services and most of them have silly names. So you don't even know what they do. If I, if I said, Oh, we really need AWS Redshift. What does that even, you don't even know it's a database product better yet. What kind of database? So, that's really challenging for anybody in leadership to, to grasp. So it's important for them to get out and start learning that. They don't need to be administrators. They don't need to know how to implement the technology, 
but they at least need to understand what it is, how it works together, and how they can be using it to make their their company better. Yeah, for example, I had no idea what you were talking about when you ta- said the D series and the E series and the the M's and F's, all that with Azure. Oh yeah, that uh, that's just Greek to me. But I need to uh, I need to go <laughs> ahead and, and get on this. But I think it's important what you're saying is not hey we need to uh, you know get rid of staff uh, or downsize our IT staffs. We need to reallocate them into the into people that uh, can can do these other jobs now that are opening up as as the jobs kind of evolve. Uh, and one way to do that would be to come up with a blueprint for a successful IT team. And that's something that Don will be actually talking about next week, uh, uh, depending on when you're watching this. It's uh, January 18th, 2018, uh, in a webinar that we're hosting uh, in partnership with Spiceworks. Uh, and we actually have uh, the URL down below for you to go and register for that. It's tinyurl.com slash webinar, uh, And you can hear Don kind of uh, talk about the the way that an IT team should be structured and, and it's interesting I've I've seen some of the slides already and and um, there's talk about the ratio of uh, you know staff to uh, you know different people on your IT team so you know how to scale up when you need to scale up because uh, it's really interesting to read some of the stats with how um, how far behind a lot of companies are when you look at those ratios of when they should have scaled up and, and the impacts that could be having on their company. So are you ready for that webinar next week? You know, it's going to be a lot of fun. I definitely encourage you, if if you're around and you have the time, definitely check it out. It's free. You know, might, might as well do it. Uh, if you can't watch it while it's live, it will be recorded, so you can watch it later. Uh, it is done in partnership with Spiceworks, so you get a chance to, to learn a little bit about uh, us, uh, IT Pro TV, as well as Spiceworks. Um, but, you know, it, it's important, I think, that we, we really stress that uh, the cloud, it, it's not eliminating jobs. A lot of people f- say that it is, but it really isn't. That if you're a desktop support engineer or if you're help desk, cloud doesn't affect you at all. And if you're a systems administrator, then you will just administer cloud machines versus on-premise machines. It really doesn't change. Now, if your sole job is unboxing servers and putting them in a rack, well, yeah, your, your job's going to be affected, right? But the job doesn't necessarily go away. It's just now at these bigger data centers. Yeah, now so you, you work for AWS. You need to go work for yeah. AWS. But if your job is unboxing a server and putting it in a rack, that's not a very diversified career. You might want to evaluate your skill set. Um, but I want to just you know spend some time and, and talk about that with people so they understand like what, what is an IT department supposed to look like, all the different job roles and titles and, and where people fall in that. So definitely tune in January 18th. Uh, it will be available recorded afterwards, too, so it, it'll be a lot of fun. Sounds good. And I wanted to end on uh, some happy news, which, uh, you know, we've been talking a lot about these exploits and things like that. And um, this is news that's happy to me. Uh, it's not happy <laughs> to the person who's the subject of this news. But we hear a lot about uh, these hacks that come out and these vulnerabilities and these exploits and ransomware and we often talk about the the victim, uh, you know, who the Equifaxes of the world and those and those people and, and um, the responsibility they had. But we we rarely get to talk about the person responsible in in uh, the initial responsibility of actually going in and, and doing uh, doing this exploit. But um, you know, they're they're thieves in the night and and uh, yeah. masking their their trails. But uh, we have one here uh, that uh, that was just uh, sentenced to over. Uh, how long was he sentenced? Uh, Sixteen count indictment. Uh, he wasn't sentenced. No, he, he was, he was charged. Sorry, right? He was charged, and it was thirteen years that he had been 
uh, monitoring people's computers. Basically, the reason that we have these uh, little webcam covers on our, our machines <laughs> these days uh, is because of, of people like this. And uh, I'm impressed. He, he began doing this when he was 14 years old. Uh, and he programmed uh, the Fruitfly malware and was, uh, I think, was able to go into Mac OS mostly and um, access webcams and, and microphones and things like that. And that's, that's pretty scary. But, uh, and, and what's also scary is how long he was able to do that and that this, this kind of thing wasn't detected. But, uh, you know, it's good to see, um, you know, someone like that brought to justice and, and caught and innocent until proven guilty. So we'll see what happens with the indictment. But uh, if that is all true, then. Uh, hopefully he's in jail for at least as long as he was monitoring us. Yeah, you know, a lot of times these people are in, in other countries, and so there's extradition and all these other things that get involved, and they, they rarely see any any jail time. Um, sometimes they, they can't be identified. Uh, so like the people behind the Petya virus, where we don't really know who that was, so you can't arrest them, or they have a team name, but nobody's figured out who's on the team, so there's no no action there. Even when they're domestic people that are doing this uh, and they get caught and arrested, our our legal system is just not set up to deal with this stuff. So many of them will be held in jail until their trial, and then they'll just get uh, probation, right, uh, time served, and they go out. So they rarely serve more than a year or two. There's a few rare cases like the Kevin Mitnicks that are out there that actually do serve a few years. The uh, the Silk Road guy that is uh, in there because I mean, he's basically selling drugs, yeah. so or facilitating the sale of drugs. So those those usually go down. But the people who are just doing denial of service attacks, writing malware, are rarely punished. And so it is nice to see one that that goes goes down. But man, ten years that he was running yeah. this stuff for and just completely un unseen. Yeah. yeah, and it's 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 nice, you know. Yeah, it's the feel good story of the year, I'd say so far. <laughs> But uh, I, was, I was telling Don before we started here that I almost see this as a catch-me-if-you-can, that uh, Leonardo DiCaprio movie, uh, one of those situations where he'll probably be working for the NSA after this uh, when, when he gets yeah. out of this is a guy that's writing this kind of code, uh, you know, at, at uh, 15, 16 years old. So, um, you know, spend, spend his time in prison and come out and, and have a nice cushy job in a security firm or something where he's, uh, you know, watching out for more like himself um, to, to stop them. But... That's pretty much all we've got today, Don. Anything else to cover? That's it. I mean, obviously, there's a lot more stuff coming out of CES, so be sure to check out the coverage that's there. Um, uh, Leo Laporte's team over at This Week in Tech are doing some great CES coverage. Tom's Hardware is doing great CES coverage. So look for gadgets there. Don't don't expect to see anything beyond gadgets, though. Uh, we do have RSA coming down the line and a few other conferences soon that will will certainly uh, spearhead some new initiatives and, and new measures that are out, which I'm, I'm looking forward to. Uh, so a lot of fun stuff. We'll keep watching, and you know we'll do this thing again next week and see what's what's new and happening. Yeah, and I think uh, we'll probably have some net neutrality news, net neutrality news, maybe next week to talk about. There's some um, votes possibly coming in in the Senate, and so we'll uh, keep an eye on that and and see what's going on. But for now, it's going to do it for this episode. So be sure to go ahead and subscribe uh, if you haven't done so already. Share it with your friends. Uh, give us a review. We'd really appreciate that. Uh, but that's going to do it for this episode, so we will see you next time.